There are three basic universal characteristics of all things, of life. What the Buddha called the three marks of existence. Anicca, which translates as impermanence or the changing nature of all things. Dukkha, which translates as the unsatisfactoriness or the suffering nature because of the unsatisfactoriness. And anatta, which translates as the not-self nature or not-separate-self nature of all things. As we practice, as mindfulness develops, we quite naturally come to know these marks of existence, these universal characteristics. We come to know them directly. We come to know the nature of things, the way of things, immediately, directly, through our own body-mind experience. This truth, these truths that have the power to set us free, actually. They're not some hidden mystery. They're available. They're totally available, moment to moment. So this evening, I'd like to begin the exploration of these three marks of existence. And the first we'll talk about this evening is anicca, or impermanence, which is, uh, we could call it the gateway to liberation, the gateway to freedom. This is from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom in a dream. And this is from a Native American man who was one of the leaders of the Blackfoot Indian tribe. His name was Crowfoot. What is life? It's a flash. It's the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. One of my teachers, a Tibetan Rinpoche, told me about a place in Tibet near where he used to live, where he was born and grew up. It's a very isolated place high in the mountains. And people there have no access to matches. And of course, there's no electricity or there's no gas available for light or for warmth or for cooking. And so for these necessities of life, life, cooking and warmth and light, they have to use fire. To make a fire fresh every day with no matches, it takes some time and it's 
quite a project. So these people in this area, in the mountains of Tibet, never let the fires go completely out. All day, every day, they keep a small fire burning, and then at night they cover it with ashes, so that in the morning there's at least a hot coal or two to start their morning fires for their light and for their cooking and for warmth. The Buddhist monks who live in this area practice very deeply with impermanence as the ground of their practice. And so at night they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. And then also in the evening when they finish their last cup of tea, they turn their cup over for the same reason, to let the next person know that they've finished, that they've really finished. So in a sense, every single evening, every single day, uh, they prepare, we could say. Uh, They prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing, the deep living with impermanence is, it's an entryway, it's a gateway to liberation. It's a gateway to freeing the heart, a gateway to freeing the mind. The only thing that we can know for sure is that everything changes. So paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization of impermanence. This intuitive insight of the changing nature of all things. The wisdom, the understanding of impermanence is really the bedrock of the Buddha's teaching. And it was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up, impelled him to leave the palace in search for freedom, for enlightenment. Our Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, really grew up in the good life, seemingly perfect good life. He had had it all. Very comfortable surroundings, very protected surroundings. At his birth, and if you remember, you probably know this, but if you don't, if you don't remember, his parents were the king and the queen in that area, so he definitely had the good life on a certain level. At his birth, uh, a wise man told his parents that this baby would either grow up to be a a very exceptionally wise ruler or if he encountered enough suffering he would become a renunciate and eventually a great spiritual teacher. So his kingly and queenly parents wanting to keep him on the family track they really tried their best to protect him from encountering any uh, suffering. And this is uh, from one of his um, discourses to his monks. 
There's not a lot written, actually, uh, about his life directly from his speech. So it's, it's very interesting to read it when you run across it. I, I look for it. He says to his monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Varanasi. My turban was of silk from Varanasi, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, the heat, the dust, the dirt, and the dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, and I did not once come down from the palace. But all of this luxury, all of the good life, and all of the protection just couldn't keep him. He wasn't satisfied, really, fully. And at one point, as um, young people are wont to do, he wanted to go out on his own into the village and see what it was like out there beyond the palace walls. So he asked his good friend, who was also the chariot driver, to take him. His father heard about this, and uh, he ordered everything to be taken off the streets, everything taken out of view that might cause any disturbance to his son. But of course, that's impossible to have that much control over things. He tried, though. So out they went, and uh, not long after they were out, Siddhartha saw a person walking along the road who was uh, covered with oozing sores and walking with a great deal of difficulty, a person who didn't look very well at all. And he'd never seen anything quite like this before. He asked his friend, what is this? What's the matter with this person? Who is this person? His friend said, this is a sick person, very sick person. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. We'll all get sick. Your parents, all your friends, everybody. Well, Siddhartha was, as the story goes, he was quite moved by this and um, disturbed. And he said, okay, I want to go home. So he went home that, that day. But the next day he wanted to go out again. And again, as they were out for a bit, moving towards the village, he saw a person walking very, very slowly with a cane. Very thin, gray, wispy hair. Dry, very wrinkled skin. Stooped over. And he'd never seen anything quite like this before. And he said again to his friend, well, what's the matter with this person? What's going on here? He said, this is a very, very old person. Everyone gets old. You, Will, your parents, all your friends, everybody, every single person. 
Again, young Siddhartha was moved and disturbed, as the story goes, and said, let's go home. Enough for today. So they did. And they had a pretty restless sleep that night. But again, the next day, he wanted to go out. And so they did. As they got closer to the village, Siddhartha saw a group of people walking along the road. They were all dressed in white. And they were carrying a plank high above their heads. And something was on it, covered with some cloth. And they were yelling, wailing, crying. He said, what, what's this? What's going on here? Why are they crying? His friend said, this is a funeral procession. And they're carrying a dead body on the plank. And they're crying because their friend or their family member is no longer alive. Well, this was disturbing again to this young man. And he, again, was quite moved and again said, enough for today, let's go home. And that night he barely slept at all. But the next morning, again, he wanted to go out. And so they did. Not long after they were riding along in the chariot, Siddhartha noticed a young man, or I don't know if he was young or old, actually, but a man, walking along. And he was draped in orange cloth. And he was walking with a kind of grace and a lightness and an easy flow in his gait. And there was this peacefulness and kind of ease emanating from him. And Siddhartha said, who's that? He said, his friend said, this man is a renunciate. This man is a yogi. He's let go of his worldly life, his regular worldly life, in search of the truth. Immediately again, Siddhartha said, let's go home. Enough. And as the story goes on, it's said that because of Siddhartha's many, many lifetimes of development into a, an extremely sensitive, deeply compassionate human being, these sights that he saw sickness, old age, death, and a renunciate struck him quite profoundly, quite deeply. These four encounters are called the four heavenly messengers. And young Siddhartha was struck quite deeply by the impermanent, insubstantial nature of life that the first three messengers displayed and the obvious suffering that he witnessed in relation to these first three encounters. He found himself quite interested and quite powerfully drawn to what the fourth heavenly messenger represented. This seeking of peace, seeking of freedom, seeking the truth. Again, this is from one of the Buddha's discourses. When an untaught person, himself or herself, 
subject to aging, to illness, to death, not beyond aging, illness, or death, sees one who is aged, ill, or dead, he's horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious to himself that he or she too is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is old, sick, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. As I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And the Buddha continued on, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and often quite unconsciously, is the myth of things somehow staying the same. The myth that we can control this changing experience that we call life. The Buddha talked many times about how powerful and how consequential it is to experience just one moment absorbed in a feeling of metta, loving-kindness. And he, again, many times said that far more powerful and more fruitful than the experience of a moment of absorption in the purity of loving-kindness is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very surely and very clearly the momentariness of all appearances. The very powerful direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence. The seed of liberation The seed of freedom lies in the clarity, this particular clarity of seeing and knowing. And this is from the Buddha. What is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. What has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe, begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. 
every single form of life, every object, every relationship, every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every single mind state, every perception, every single experience, every single breath. The world of form without, around us, and the world of form within us, not, nothing, none of it is static. This earth, it feels very permanent, solid, in place. A while ago, I uh, received a postcard from a friend of mine that had a really lovely photograph on the front of it. It was uh, some sand dunes and uh, a mountain behind them. Very pleasurable to look at. And I turned the card over, and um, this was what it said on the back of the card. The gypsum forming these sand dunes, or these dunes originated from the dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited as seabed, seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago, when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the Guadalupe Mountains. It's probably still blowing, too. <laughs> and I turned the card back over, and I looked at it. It was still a pleasure to look at, but I had a different attitude. Something different. Understood something. Wasn't so solid. These places that we live in, wherever it may be, Taos or New England or down south or wherever it is, they appear to us often, uh, when we forget, <laughs> as though they've been this way forever. Kind of like this. This is how it is. And the way we act and our attitude often reflects this. Uh, this past um, February and March, I taught in Israel for the second time. Two years ago, I also taught there. And this is a place where there is uh, an enormous amount of strife, as I'm sure you're aware of, since it's been in the news lately, around whose place it is. It's been going on for thousands of years between all the various groups that have lived there. Whose place is this? During this retreat uh, that I taught there this year, um, we had a discussion uh, one evening with the staff uh, of, the, of the retreat, and this very thing came up. It came up every night because it's, uh, it's on fire over there right now, so people talk about it a lot. And uh, one woman said, well, this is our land. It's our land. And I said, well, is it really? Who, who owns it? We, it's imaginary that we own this, any land, that we own any ground. Who owns it? 
And uh, I said, the Arabs have lived here for thousands of years. Jews have lived here for thousands of years. All kinds of, I named a few different creatures that have lived there. The trees have lived here. I said, Who, whose is it? Whose is it? And yet, the city of Jerusalem, uh, it's a city uh, built of rock, built on rock. I found out that it's been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries in this struggle of people trying to make it theirs who's, and, and have the, uh, the ones whose it isn't leave. And it's still going on. This is a poem from Pablo Neruda. We the mortals touch the metals, the wind, the ocean shores, the stones, knowing they will go on, inert or burning. And I was discovering, naming all these things. It was my destiny to love and say goodbye. Wherever we are on this earth, on a clear night, we look up into the sky and we see stars. We see formations of stars, friendly formations for me, because if I go somewhere else, it's the same. I kind of feel at home, familiar. This is a piece I found in the newspaper. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur, with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. There will be no trace of the Earth, save perhaps the 1970s era Pioneer and Voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for more than five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced Earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, says Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. <laughs> It's my favorite part. <laughs> However, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. The word form most usually implies a kind of solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming. They're constantly coming together, coming apart, endlessly. So our world can't actually be solidly objectified. Our world isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time, we only know this in, as an abstraction. We really mostly just know it as a concept. 
we know it intellectually. And I think even more often for many, many people, it's forgotten. It's ignored. Or we're constantly trying to distract ourselves from this truth by accumulating things, by planning, by living in and out of our memories, by fantasizing, by hoping, by expecting, by coveting, by getting caught in fear. If we rigidly, tightly hold on to how we want the future to be, or how we want our next sitting to be, all of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And inevitably, as you well know, if you've decided how your next sitting is to be, you come to face disappointment, or maybe anger, or judgment, self-judgment, or judgment of me, or judgment of the person sitting next to you who caused the problem. And we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've just missed the present moment. We're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion. This false sense of control, this false sense of permanence. So actually, much of the time, we're practicing permanence. Much of the time, we almost desperately want everything to stay as it is. To continue as we know it, even if it's uncomfortable sometimes, the familiar. Or to become the way we want it to be. So much so that we believe we have control. So much so that we think things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe. Make-belief. As our practice deepens and we begin to see more and more clearly, we begin to discover that actually belief has little or maybe actually nothing to do with reality. And the tighter we grasp onto our beliefs, the more limited our life is. A good question to ask yourself every once in a while is, uh, how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe, made-up beliefs, with all of the assumptions the sometimes misinformation and the varying and changing opinions and ideas about this and that. And then hold on to it quite tightly. How often do I construct my life on this rickety foundation? As we pay a mindful attention, a kind of extraordinary attention, to our experiences of body and mind, we begin to know, we begin to directly touch, directly experience the constant rapidity of change. 
from the smallest, most minute micro-changes, for instance, in sensations, to the very large, macro, seemingly solid substantiality of form. Even to the seeming substantiality of thoughts as they literally fly through the mind. I'm sure you've noticed. (laughs) There's a story that I heard um, that I um, was told is true. Uh, It's about a physicist um, who uh, did a lot of research on matter and its components. And in the research, breaking it all down and finding nothing substantial. And uh, it said that this particular physicist went a little off. He went a little crazy. Uh, And he started wearing these big, huge padded slippers everywhere he went, just in case he fell through the floor. (laughs) I think I met him one day, actually, up at the Lama Foundation. I'm not kidding. I'm not, I didn't ask him, but I thought maybe he was the one. <laughs> Very unusual physicist up there. <laughs> didn't, have didn't have his slippers on. He might have gotten over it. <laughs> In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is changed. So why do we fear? Why do we Resist this perfectly natural phenomena, change. The beginnings and the endings, the births and the deaths. Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? It's always with us, always. Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without impermanence, in fact, there wouldn't be any life. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. If there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you'll never have a, a grain, an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Long may impermanence live long. <laughs> Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. This is a a poem by a man named Red Hawk. The wheat farmer says goodbye to his only daughter. His heart cracks like parched earth to see her go, but he's not free enough to weep. So he walks with her this evening out in the summer wheat where the stalks beat softly. Suddenly in his fertile anguish, his heart blooms, And like the last mad king of wild wheat, he grabs his child and twirls her. Through the sea of grain, he whirls her, she holding tightly, he boldly dancing in the moonlight. When at last they fall, he's winded and amazed. On his knees, he embraces her. And then she takes her leaving like a wild wheat flower dancing, waving in the softly breathing wind. He watches her go weaving moving slowly through the moonlight, and he fingers ripened grain in calloused hand. There's just one thing to do now, that his daughter is departed, 
to harvest cleanly and without regret. In this way, he pays homage to the precious seeds he's planted. One blooms by rooting and one by blowing away. So looked at from these perspectives, impermanence, change, is actually an amazing natural marvel. This universal movement, constant change, the cycling of life, and the possibility of immediate presence with this cycling of life in all the forms that it takes. Not getting caught up, not getting lost in hopes, fears, regrets. Life in its cycling is dying all of the time. In the same volume that new life happens all of the time. For instance, in the spring, this season, or each morning when we wake up to this new life, this new day. And this is from William Blake. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move deeper into the exploration and the acceptance, this radical acceptance of impermanence, of the changing nature of things, the way of things, our nature as nature? There are infinite mirrors in our practice, in our life. I just mentioned the changing seasons around us. A number of years ago, I was uh, sitting a three-month retreat at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And I was taking a slow walk out in the forest behind the center. And it was late or mid-fall. The colors in New England at that season were are very potent, very beautiful. And I was seeing the ground of the forest just carpeted with rich reds and shades of shimmering greens and golds. It was very beautiful. I was quite immersed in this experience. And then all of a sudden, very unexpectedly, a knowing came in. And it wasn't through thinking. It's a very intuitive knowing that this, this beauty, that the world is dying in its unbearable beauty all of the time. And I uh, proceeded to burst into tears. <laughs> and I cried for off and on for a few days, um, which you can do on a long retreat if you need to. You could do it on a short retreat too, but it's easier if you've got lots of time. <laughs> I was, in a sense, grieving the loss of the world. 
feeling my heart breaking. And at the same time, there was an elation, an opening, a real release. Soon after I had this experience, uh, uh, a friend, a Buddhist nun actually, a friend gave me this little poem, a haiku, I don't know who wrote it. When with breaking heart I realized this world is only a dream, the oak tree looks radiant. So this constant cycling, this constant circling, the universal movement of life, the truth of anicca, impermanence, from light to dark, the movement of the breath through the body, the changing weather from storm to calm to cold to warm to sun to gray within a few hours. This is a poem from Mary Oliver, who uh, has a rather unique and beautiful way of expressing this. Look, the trees are turning their bodies into pillars of light, are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and then when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. As we look more closely at our own process, our own body-mind process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under what someone called an assumed identity. This assumed solidity of our body and our thoughts, which is very often quickly followed by grasping onto the thoughts, grasping onto feelings, grasping onto emotional states of mind. All of the habitual fixations that we live with and that we believe and that we call our own, we call me, we call mine, we call I, we identify ourselves through this. We think it's who we are. As we practice, we begin to see, we begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process just happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, various changing manifestations of energies, energies of mind, energies of body, each with its particular qualities, particular flavors, particular textures that are constantly changing in themselves. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change as we begin to see more clearly. This compulsive 
addictive grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show, it begins to loosen its strong attraction. Trying to control what is actually uncontrollable, what is actually ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change, this begins to soften as we begin to relax, open our hands, so to say. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to hold on, to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control, the fear of being in and with life as it is, the fear begins to relax, begins to weaken, fade, as we surrender more and more deeply to the truth of the moment. So now we're practicing impermanence. A question that I imagine you may have asked yourself even in these last couple of days that you may ask friends and um, certainly people ask me, uh, why do you practice? At one point when someone asked me this, um, surprising to me, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true. I am practicing for my death. On one level, it's um, so that I might actually have the possibility of being truly present at what we call the big death. In fact, I uh, just recently made a will and uh, a health directive and all kinds of things around um, my impending death and that I might actually be here for it. (laughs) You never know. I might not be here for it. (laughs) I'd like to be. So I'm practicing towards that possibility. It may not happen. Um, But the momentary reality of practice right in the moment, right now, moment by moment, is that I'm practicing being present with the death of my conditioned self, the death of all of the habitually learned ways that uh, I keep making, keep recreating this assumed identity, this delusion of me, of I as a some separate, solid something. Practicing to see how that happens over and over again. Practicing to see how selfing happens. And letting go in the seeing. I'm practicing to, I could say, see the death of who I think I am. And to be present for that death and the birth of the truth of this person, of this being, of this life. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, little deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath, and in ways that we never could have imagined or expected. And as our practice deepens, 
goes along and deepens. It gets easier and easier to accept, to surrender to this. I mean, if we keep seeing it over and over and over again, eventually we say, okay, this is how it is. This assumed solidity, this assumed identity of me that's so frightening to let go of for most of us is seen through practice more and more as just process, changing, constantly changing, beginning and ending again and again and again, every minute, every second. The acceptance of change, the forming and the unforming, the birth, the death, is actually really the acceptance of life. All of the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing. What we think we want, what we think we need. I mean, you've probably experienced that in the last hour. Changing. Our desires that seem so very strong, so clear, so right. Changing. Quickly. We feel lonely. We want some attention. And so we get attention in some form. And we're delighted. We're happy. And then we feel bothered by it. (laughs) We feel impinged on by it. We want it to end. We want it to go away. We're miserable. We're suffering. We're unhappy. (laughs) That's how it is. (laughs) Getting caught in it is the problem. Changing likes and dislikes. All relative conditioned states of mind. Totally dependent on an enormous set of conditions which are also changing moment to moment to moment. Emotional states of mind and feelings, what I talked about yesterday, the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant, changing very quickly. States of anger, of irritation, states of resentment, very solid, very righteous, absolute, true. When we feel these things, we we feel like we're really right. Anger is very powerful. It's a very energetic, powerful energy, very passionate energy. With a clear attention, mindful attention, directly into anger, and seeing it, knowing it, as it is, Letting go of the story around it. Letting go of the self-referencing identification. This contracted, very self-centered quality that's inherent in anger until we see it clearly. Pulling out the thread of self, we could say. Then we can actually clearly see what's going on, what's taking place. And our energy's freed up. That powerful energy of anger is freed up. The energy doesn't go. It's just transformed. The possibility of anger transforming into a mirror-like wisdom, seeing clearly. 
Forgiveness, for instance, it's a powerful change out of anger. And not so easy. We might be able to forgive where we may have been very solidly unforgiving. As we open, as we experience and we see more directly and more clearly, allowing the very natural and inevitable flow of change and its attendant emerging wisdom without resisting. We might not forgive any particular action. There might be some actions that aren't forgivable. But it is possible to forgive the actor. We can forgive maybe the ignorance that stems from a closed heart or an unopened heart. Or we might be able to forgive a forgetful mind. It might be ours or someone else's. And then we can continue or maybe we can begin to care about ourselves or another person. Or at least see ourselves or another person without blaming. And begin to understand that it's the state of mind, it's it's the anguish, it's the confusion, it's the pain. It's the lack of awareness. It's the closed heart. It's the ignorance. It's the delusion that the action comes out of. Within ourself or within another. And then compassion is born. This new or changed relationship out of anger into some degree of connection within ourself allows the blossoming of compassion, creating a spaciousness for healthy action grounded in this compassion and understanding. And so as we open and see more clearly, we begin to see ourselves with less and less judgment. And we see that we are still, to whatever degree, acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance acted out of forgetfulness, acted out of our old, conditioned, habituated places of suffering, many times ourselves, And so we change, and we forgive where we maybe have been quite solidly unforgiving. Dogen, uh, 13th century Zen master, defined Buddha nature as being impermanence. This is from Dogen. We do not just have Buddha nature. We are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness, their impermanence, not only as understanding the great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight, the great compassion, impartial care, love, heartfulness, that may include even one's enemy. So 
another venue for looking at impermanence. Probably most of us in this room um, have had quite a strong identification with our body and our face um, and how it looked when we were younger. There are um, times when my mother, who's um, 88, we find ourselves standing next to each other looking in the mirror sometimes. Um, and at one point, we, uh, we were standing there and looking in the mirror, and uh, she said uh, to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating over and over, it's so strange, it's so strange. She said, I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. And recently she said, when we were standing there again looking in the mirror, and we don't do this on purpose, but you know, it sort of happens. (laughs) She said, I look older than anybody else. And she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. And then she continued on with, it's so strange, it's so strange. So, is it strange? I mean... Is it really strange? Stranger than what? (laughs) Which is a line from a song, by the way. (laughs) It's just life doing what it does. Life being (laughs) lifey. This is a a poem that was um, given to me from one of the students in Israel. It's called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake. An airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a net of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines so that we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us, tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. If you've never uh, stood in front of the mirror and looked at your own face for a long time, just really focused, concentrated on your own face. It keeps changing. It just keeps changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? This is a, a piece from um, Stephen Mitchell, his version of the myth of Narcissus or Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He'd seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose, sloping to a curious plateau under the tip, near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot, kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form 
he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. Nature is a a powerful teacher. Observing the grasses in the fall, watching the changing nature of grass, drying up, losing its color, losing its moisture, changing shape, curling over, paying attention to something like grass. What's the dharma of grass? Are we really different from this? Are we different at all from this? No matter how much moisturizer we use, (laughs) no matter how many good, healthy vitamins we take or good, healthy food we eat, no matter how many long walks we do or how much yoga we do or how much rupalila we do, (coughs) our skin dries out. Our hair loses its color, falls out. Our bodies change shape. No matter who we are, and no matter how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has a schedule to keep, and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. This is another poem by Red Hawk. We have to go deeper inside like the tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we've had enough and it's no longer worth it to get up out of bed. The morning is cold. The gray clouds move in like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That's the time when we have to go deeper through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die, or their nerves will fail. Women or men will cease to be thrilled with you, and your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You'll still tremble in the leg, go gray and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. (laughs) Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it's easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you and then sit there in the heart where you can't be taken 
while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag of bones. Too long of a talk. The Buddha said that living a single a moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. It's so valuable because this clear seeing of impermanence leads to the end of suffering. A clear and sure insight into impermanence leads to the understanding of the cause of suffering. Clearly seeing the arising and passing away of phenomena, knowing very surely the momentariness of all appearances, leads to the understanding of the conditional nature of all phenomena. This is a piece from Carlos Castaneda's book, Journey to Ixlan. The thing to do when you're impatient is turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you just catch a glimpse of it, or if you have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castaneda died, he and um, three of his friends were having lunch together. And this is a, a part of a piece written by one of those friends, Michael Ventura. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. But for all of his fragility, he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, and her child, but she still felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering this woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or the generosity of his manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, Everyone she loved, and she herself, were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, said Carlos, and you'll soon have a spiritual life. As we begin to accept this, with this radical acceptance, the dance that life is in all of its various manifestations. Our life begins to take on a peacefulness, a deeper balance, an equanimity, and a great appreciation and joy begins to blossom. We live so much more fully in the present moment, seeing all of the phenomena of body, heart, mind, 
the whole dance and play of life within us and around us as self-arising, self-liberating, coming in, going out, forming and unforming, continually changing. We're more and more with life just as it is, within this very natural, innate spaciousness, openness, and clarity of mindful awareness. As we wake up to the impermanent, conditioned nature of phenomena, we less and less experience that feeling of missing anything. We're responding to life here, now, in the moment, with a very authentic, bright liveliness as it dances through us, dances around us. We're just simply here with the passing show. And again from the Buddha. This existence of ours is as transient as the autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime is like a flash of lightning in the sky, rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. Living more deeply with the acceptance of impermanence allows us to respond more freely to what in reality is completely new. A moment, any moment, every moment, never met before, never before experienced. And as Krishnamurti says, acting as though we don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. And so we practice immediate presence. We practice mindfulness. We practice seeing clearly. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of a self-centered existence. And it's a gateway into the experiential understanding of the truth that there's no separate, solid, static anything. No self. We begin to understand that we're all part of this intricate, endlessly changing, reflective web of life. And we really, truly begin to understand the suffering in ourselves and the suffering in others that's created by trying to hold on the anguish created by resistance. Resistance to the truth that every facet of life surrounding us and in us is not fixed, is not permanent, is not static. It's all intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. As the understanding of impermanence deepens, it actually brings a great relief and a great lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. And then there's the time, the energy available to live to our heart's content, 
This is from a Tibetan text. All thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. And I want to close the talk this evening with a little poem by an Australian poet, Michael Lunig, who's also a cartoonist and always draws a little cartoon with each of his poems. This one is a line drawing of a man uh, who's got his arm stretched out, left arm stretched out, with a frying pan in it, with a big blob of black stuff in the frying pan and billows of smoke coming out of the blob of black stuff. And his head's turned, looking at it kind of with wide open eyes, sort of surprised, maybe amazed. This is the poem that goes with it. We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold on to. As for the things we can't hold on to anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And he ends all his poems with, Amen. (laughs) And let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.